Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of video storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Nicholas Levich. Nick is the co-founder of Psychedelic Passage. He serves as a psychedelic guide that facilitates ceremonial experiences in the United States with an emphasis on safety and harm reduction. He also does prep and integration work with an emphasis on the intersection of spirituality and psychedelics. Outside of medicine work, he facilitates men's groups to provide men with support, accountability, brotherhood, and initiation. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nick, and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pacifico. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure is all mine. And so I'd love to know, take me back. What first inspired you to become a psychedelic? It's funny because I don't think it was a conscious choice in the sense that I set out to do this at a young age or anything of the sort. My background is actually in finance, real estate, and legal studies. And it took about three years of working in corporate America before I literally had the soul sucked out of me and realized I couldn't do that anymore. And uh, that basically contributed to my dark night of the soul. And I ended up meeting a shamanic practitioner in Ayahuascaro who uh, in hindsight became my mentor. I had no idea that was how the relationship was going to go at the time. I was basically just trying to figure my own shit out. And we ended up embarking on a a four-year apprentice where I really learned the ins and outs of facilitation, men's work, spirituality, and eventually he always told me from the get-go, like, you're destined to do this work, and my ego had such resistance to it, and over time, those walls and barriers started to crumble, and I realized, oh, wow, I really do enjoy serving humans, and eventually he gave me his blessing to continue doing this work, and that's how I got to here at a very high level. Wow. So how long have you been practicing? I have been, Psychedelic Passage was started about 18 months ago. And so that's really been my formal foray into this work. And so tell me more about this apprenticeship that you took on. 
What was involved? It was everything from the vast majority of it, from my perspective, is becoming embodied yourself. And so to me, this is what's missing in kind of traditional Western healthcare is that you can go to school and come out with a therapist degree, but no part of that degree is predicated on doing your own work, exploring your own psyche and embodying the, the qualities of call it peace, love, oneness, uh, these higher frequencies. And this work was truly a journey in embodiment. So everything from various spiritual initiations to doing medicine work myself as a participant to then learning how to facilitate medicine work for others and learning how to do men's work. And so it was a lot of different stuff. In my first initiation, I fasted for 14 days on water only. And that truly rewrote my understanding of how I relate to my body in particular, but also just the the interwoven nature of mind, body and spirit. Wow, that sounds wicked intense. <laughs> 14 days. It was like it was more like 19 days without solid food because it was juice on the front and the back end. But yeah, water only, no calories for 14 days. I mean, I'm six foot one. And by the end of it, I weighed 118 pounds. I had no more fat to give. Wow, that is so wild. That is, yeah, that's a journey right there. <laughs> yeah, it was really profound, honestly. And that really is what really opened uh, my eyes to what we as humans are capable of and that so much exists beyond what a lot of us experience here in the Western world. And so were you out in sort of not necessarily a desert, but you were, were you in some sort of like isolation or were you still just like at home and you had to like really work even harder to suppress the urges and stuff? Oh, yeah, I was at home and I had roommates at the time and they're cooking oh, pizzas and doing all kinds of stuff. And your, oh, sense, God. your sense of smell becomes so acute because it's the, the hunter mentality where if you're an indigenous tribes person and you haven't eaten in several days, your sense of smell becomes really acute so you can go hunt or gather food. And so I could smell like someone cutting an apple in the other room, which I had never experienced before. Uh, and yeah, it was brutal at a certain point because I'm just watching them <laughs> munch down on all this delicious food and I can't do anything. Oh my God. Yeah, I definitely, I feel like I'd rather be in like a sweat lodge or just like in a tent in the middle of the desert with nothing to actually tempt me. That's definitely way more hardcore to be like just living regular modern life, especially with roommates. But yeah, that's wild. Yeah, it's funny. I actually had to sign a contract uh, with the naturopath that was overseeing the whole thing to basically say that I wouldn't leave my house because your blood pressure and blood sugar gets so low that fall risk is very high. So I actually like he had a Marine that he worked with that he took on a fast. And one of his rules is that men have to sit down when they urinate when they're fasting. And this Marine thought he was tough shit and couldn't or didn't need to do that. And he hit the deck into the bathroom. And it was a learning experience on a lot of different fronts. And honestly, the fasting itself was easier than the refeeding process, because that's where the, the problems really arise. It's like you have to ease back into food at such a slow rate. It took me about three months to get back to my body weight pre fast. Oh, wow. That is an intense and yeah. That is a long experience. And so that was a requirement of essentially the the program you were doing? None of it's a formal program. Like the, the 
teacher that I've studied under and still work with today, it's all intuition. And so based on whatever it is that you as the student are working through, he devises stuff specifically for you. Okay, so it's a little more like, uh, like way of the peaceful warrior, like you just got a guru and they're like, all right, here's the shit you got to do. Just Correct. take care of it. And it's just about making sure you're not faltering in their eyes in some ways. Correct. Because these guru or teacher type people, they can see through all of your shit. And they have such an expanded level of awareness and such a strong intuition that they know exactly what's going on, even when you don't know what's going on. And so everything was devised to to coax you through dealing with your wounds, your triggers, your own problem areas. And so this was very much a personalized experience. We were spending four hours together every week uh, just working through my stuff so that I could basically, the whole purpose of this from my perspective is to, to polish my own mirror so that I can be an accurate reflection for others without infusing my own ego into the mix. Yeah, that is super wild. That takes definitely a hardcore level of dedication. I'm, yeah, I haven't talked to anyone who's done like something that significant, even in this field. So that is uh, very impressive. <laughs> Thanks. At the time, I don't think I knew quite what I was signing up for, but here I am. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So you mentioned you sort of had like a finance and like legal studies background growing up and even in young adulthood. Did you ever have any inkling that you were interested in or going to go down this route? Were you spiritual at all? Or was this just the universe just came and swept you along in this journey? Oh, no, I got swept pretty good. I, I, actually, <laughs> I actually had gotten into law school, put that off. My whole track growing up was to be businessman, lawyer, or whatever. I, I, I think there's, you know, my family never told me what I could or couldn't do, but I think there's these subtle energetic pressures to conform to these various tracks that are very well defined. And uh, school was pretty easy for me. I never really found it very challenging, but it also wasn't fulfilling. And so I had no real concept of self. And so I honestly picked a major that made the most money, which is so crazy to think about now. And so it was basically a series of trial and error for me where I realized that everything I had tried after I got out of this defined track just still left me feeling hollow inside. Yeah, I could definitely see that. That's uh, yeah. Wow. Hell of a journey. I'm just like still like wrapping my brain around all of it. It's so wild. So what kind of psychedelics do you work with now? Is it primarily just ayahuasca or do you have a range of things that you work with? We primarily work with psilocybin now because the way that we're set up with psychedelic passage is we don't provide the substance, which is what allows us to do this legally inside the mm -hmm. U.S. And more, more often than not, we'll travel to someone's home or private residence and facilitate a ceremony for them there, and they supply the psilocybin, which as far as psychedelics go, is one of the easiest source given that you can grow it and there's also companies literally shipping psilocybin direct to consumer right now, they're willing to take the risk. And so from our perspective, we fit into this interesting area where given the legal landscape of psychedelics currently, this is one of the only options in the US aside from full-blown underground practitioners. Other than that, you've got ketamine or you've got to go out of the country. And so mm. there's a lot of people, especially in the midst of COVID, that just don't want to leave the country or don't have the means to. And so 
we fit into this in-between space. And I think it's inevitable that our our uh, service model evolves as the legal landscape evolves. But for right now, this has been a really great niche to be in. Oh, it's fascinating. And so you essentially got, it sounds like you got your start maybe around like 2015-ish. And so what has it been like from beginning that journey with your mentor in that apprenticeship and then all of a sudden having multiple cities and states be like, oh yeah, we're all in on mushrooms. Oh yeah, boga, cool. Let's just start decriminalizing psychedelics and like making shit happen that now there is like a, like people put it on LinkedIn now, like I'm a psychedelic such and such, right? A guide, a therapist, what have you, that we now have this burgeoning cottage industry just seemingly out of nowhere while we still have like cannabis as a schedule one drug. I think it's pretty cool. I It's funny because part of my transition out of the corporate world was into entrepreneurship, specifically in the cannabis industry, because when that switch first happened in 2014, a light bulb went off and I'm like, this is going to explode. And everyone was too scared to get involved. And I'll never forget the look on my my boss's face when I told him that I was resigning to start a company in the cannabis industry. And he's like, what the hell? They just couldn't figure it out. And lo and behold, what, what cannabis really did was it paved a way forward for medicalization and decriminalization. I think the downside to cannabis was we were not taught what intentional use looks like. And you have a lot of people engaging with this plant that can be very powerful and profound without any real guardrails on the experience or any understanding as to how to consciously engage. And I'm very grateful for what happened with cannabis because of this path forward that is now following suit with psychedelics. But I do hope that we don't see the same level of commodification and of we, we introduce some more of this intentional use idea. Yeah, it is fascinating because like you said, like unlike cannabis, there's really some like multiple tracks going on within psychedelics where there's people going that we're going to make a startup and we're going to get FDA approval for such and such. But then there's like people trying to patent shit, which I think sucks. But then there's also, I was just speaking with a, a naturopathic doctor, like I was telling you that does ketamine assisted psychotherapy. And we are talking about how for pharmaceuticals, for antidepressants and stuff, like you have to be a psychiatrist in order to prescribe those. But within psychedelics, it's actually been much more decentralized, which I think is the best possible approach. And I think it's better for getting it out to as many people as possible, because there's obviously a limited, fairly limited number of psychiatrists in the country, versus the number of therapists, psychologists, or people like yourself, who are otherwise can be, you know, got quote, unquote, guides, or take on other types of titles. And that really can allow for the dispersion of psychedelics, so that people can be engaging in this without having to go to seven years of schooling or something so that we can actually get this in people's hands. And one thing he was also saying, I asked him about how important is it that people actually have used psychedelics versus the average psychiatrist has never taken antidepressants, I'd imagine. And definitely it's not a requirement. And he said, it's absolutely a must, right? Like you can't really facilitate the best possible experience for someone if you don't know what it's like to hallucinate or experience ego death or go through some of these transformations.
Uh, I couldn't agree more. I tell people it's like trying to teach someone how to fly a plane, but you've never actually flown it yourself. And and it does it to me. That means a lot more than just one journey. Like you have to intimately understand how these substances work within your own psyche before you can even get close to helping someone else work through their own stuff. And I also agree that it is really nice that consumers are going to have a choice between the more medicalized model. If you want to go into a clinic and have a doctor and, and be fully monitored, great. And if you want the more ceremonial model, that's also available to you. And different people are going to resonate with different models. And we see this time and time again. We have a surprising amount of people that call into us after having horrible experiences with ketamine treatment because there's no regulation or oversight of these clinics. And so they all have different protocols. There's no standard. And we've heard some crazy stories about about people's past experiences with quote unquote medical professionals. And I, I like it's shocking to me that some of this stuff is even occurring, but it is. And so I think it's really important that consumers have a choice as to which track they choose to go down. Yeah, it was actually really fascinating to me because I've had friends that, you know, went to ketamine clinics before and I was like, oh, so do you just like go into a K-hole each time and just like step outside yourself and play observer for 45 minutes? And they're like, oh, no, it's just like a very mild dose and just just makes just takes the edge off life. And I was like, oh, but then when I was talking to this doctor, he was like, oh, there's that model. But I, my intent is to give people the actual psychedelic experience, which is essentially like putting people into a K-hole, which is that's full on ego death, right? That's not a comfortable experience for most people, but it is a very transformative experience. And so it's fascinating to me to see even within that like specific like ketamine assisted psychotherapy that there was actually a huge range of the way people were using it and it's made me think that i would then guess that like the people who are just doing like low dose ketamine therapy have probably never done ketamine it's probably a little more clinical and that it's more this guy was a naturopathic doctor and so it's that's a little bit more i don't want to totally say woo but it's not just like the white lab coat kind of approach impersonalized or depersonalized medicine really when especially which is ironic right because there's no better depersonalization tool i would say than than ketamine and definitely a k-hole that can really kill your ego make you step outside of yourself and see things from a different perspective but it is a severe experience and it can really i'm not surprised you'd have heard people that i'd imagine if you went into a clinic if you went into a doctor's office that was like that white lab coat approach and you and they don't necessarily get the dose and you end up in a k-hole like you're probably not gonna have a great time with that and they're probably not gonna go no the best way is to help you and that just goes back to me to the importance of preparation it's not the ego death that creates the issue. It's the the not knowing what it is or not, not understanding that it's a possibility. It's the surprise that creates the trauma. If you're aware of what it is and the value of it, then you can hold it with a bit more grace. Yeah, it really is about like managing expectations because it's not like ketamine's like salvia where it's like just he's like a, a violently hallucinogenic experience of being ripped out of like the present reality that you've come to know and love and visit other dimensions or universes or something like that. But yeah, it is just fascinating to see this really widespread, broad, broad like broadly different approaches to this burgeoning thing whereas for the most part like you're saying like cannabis it was just okay we've got the illicit market 
And now we've got the medicinal market, which was functionally just like a quasi legalized market in most places. And that was the point of it more to keep people like out of jail than like actually to provide patient rights or help people in that sense. But I think I'm really encouraged by what states and cities are trying to do because they're like, hey, we'd rather people do mushrooms than, you know, opiates of all kinds, right? Like we don't want people dying of heroin in our streets or fentanyl and stuff like that. Let's just let people do mushrooms and like things can be cool. Totally. And I think people are seeing, God bless Michael Pollan for writing that book, because I think that really changed the stigma among the older generation, uh, the baby boomers and, and even the people older than that. And then you've got the credibility of the Johns Hopkins stuff that's coming out. And I think with each passing day, there's more and more proof that these are helpful compounds when used intentionally. Oh, totally. And he brought up, yeah, my last guest brought up Michael Pollan as well. And I think, yeah, it was really like a sea change in the industry from a totally, I would think for most people, like unexpected source, someone who writes mostly about food and some other various topics to then just be like, hey, yo, go get some mushrooms, like go, go trip balls somewhere and change your life uh, and change the way your mind works and just get a different perspective on things. And I'm all about helping people reimagine life and, and what their life and relationships and business and society can be. Because a lot of times, like you're just born into whatever society you're born into, but every single society on earth, like there's just so much cultural conditioning that then when you reach adulthood, you're mostly taught not to question anything and just be like, hey, this is the way it is. And then eventually you start to come out of all that, hopefully, and that you're then like, oh, wait a minute, like, this isn't just like the natural evolution of things. This is the result of oftentimes a lot of shitty decisions. And in this country, mostly by white men throughout history to subjugate others and control others. And it's actually, we don't need to run anything this way. There's literally an infinite number of ways that we could design society, our economy, and multiple other things that can center human dignity, human happiness. And it's, we've, my entire life, we've never been anywhere close to the top happiest you know, country in the world. But people just are like, America's number one. And it's like, who gives a shit? Like, you're not even focused on any of the really, the the right things that really matter in life. When it's like, why do you think people are happier in countries where healthcare is guaranteed? Because you don't stress about getting hurt. You don't stress about going into massive debt. Even I was in the military and had essentially socialized medicine, like government paid healthcare. It was just a stress that didn't exist in my life. It was just like, if I get sick, if I get hurt or anything, I will never have to worry about this. And then as soon as you get out, it's, oh, I have to worry about this. This is like a new stress in my life that I wasn't experiencing for years. And people just don't even think about how much just that stress, just that mental toll takes upon people because so much of our physical problems in this world are really psychosomatic like it's just your mind being stressed out or having different issues that aren't being addressed maybe because you've had past traumas and then it starts to manifest in horrible ways in your body and that's another way i think like psychedelics are so important because cannabis is nice and all but like cannabis more just takes the edge off life it's not like an introspection tool like most psychedelics are they can be like oh hey wake up you actually were abused as a child and that's like why this shitty thing happens to your body or your mind or just other like various things that it can help uncork your brain a little bit to remember who you are and remember like why you're here and what you should really be doing with your life 
Totally. I see cannabis as what I call an ally plant and psychedelics as teacher plants. And they are definitely different, but they're both, they both have their merits. And, and to me, this, what you were talking about is the, to me, is the essence of the fact that we have lost sight of the humanness in our Western world, at least in the U.S. Like everything is based on productivity, output, growth, and we've totally lost sight of humanity. And to me, when we start to re-recognize each other as humans, then this idea of basic rights doesn't seem so far-fetched. Oh, yeah. For this country was born just on a legacy of control. And every religion is really just about control. And it's just, they're all things that are just taking us away from who we are as humans, who we are as immortal souls having this human experience here. And I think there's always just been a strong push, especially in this country, but for societies like immemorial, really to push people away from things that will wake them up to those realities. So in this country, it's like even in the 60s and 70s, right? Like they didn't want people dropping acid because you drop acid, like you're not going to want to fight in the Vietnam War once you've dropped acid. You can't, you're not as likely to want to be a cog in the machine if you've dropped acid or you've done other psychedelics that are like, oh, hey, you're just like one with the universe. There is no other. And like revealing these universal truths to you that otherwise have been massively suppressed by our cultural conditioning. Totally. And so it is funny that we're in the midst of this third revolution of psychedelics because it's nothing new. These things have been used for tens of thousands of years. We just refuse to acknowledge that they actually can be agents of profound transformation and healing due to some very well thought out DARE programs. (laughs) Oh, God, DARE. Oh, man, that takes me back. I haven't heard that in a while. It's funny, too. I remember, like, thinking back on D.A.R.E., like, I was, like, a first grader, and they were, like, introducing us, like, PCP. And it's just, like, what do you need to be teaching a first grader about PCP for? I'm all for, like, drug education, and I think that's an important part. Like, we need to actually tell kids and teach kids about drugs and tell them what they really are and tell them what they all really do. And then be like, hey, your brain doesn't fully like develop until you're 25. I don't think we should set 25 as like the age which we allow people to do drugs. But I think it's just set it at 18 and just be like, hey, this is when you're allowed to start doing these things. Obviously, kids are always going to try and do stuff when they're younger because they want to. But actually being honest about things, I can't even imagine. I can't even count like the number of people that I knew that dare and programs like it just made them want to do drugs because they just be like oh this is like really taboo but it sounds cool as hell and there were certain stuff like watching videos of people on pcp and stuff that you'd be like that are just like going raging and fighting people and stuff like that you're like oh yeah i don't want to ever do that but it is fascinating just to see like how the war on drugs has just been like so inept because it's just like try to be this system of control rather than like under the guise of education when it's just really been nonsense. And I think it's just really led people to trust the government even less. Imagine having a government that is, hey, cannabis 
is awesome. It does these things, but it has these drawbacks and it has, and it can go through with every different drug. From my perspective, I think it's interesting your dichotomy of an ally plant versus the teacher plant. I think that's very much true. And I think there's even sort of different dynamics within psychedelics themselves of what the sort of dynamics are, whether it's something for you to learn on your own, which I think is the case with LSD versus things where ayahuasca, where it's like, hey, I got... I'm the universe here to teach you a lesson and let's go. And, but for me, I think all drugs to me are, I, I think of them as cheat codes. And so it's a way for you to pierce the veil, see beyond what our reality is, think about things in a different way. And I think each drug is a cheat code into a different thing, right? So it's cannabis can help you sleep or reduce your anxiety or reduce your depression or has all these different roles. And if we can be open and honest about all of those things and teach children, maybe starting at 12 or 13, when they're old enough to handle the concepts around it and be like, hey, here's some different things that exist, right? Just like all these different foods exist, music exists. I think that I'm also someone who I'm like, oh, anything can be a drug, right? Like music can be a drug, food can be a drug, and that sort of broad umbrella kind of sense. But I think really being open and honest with our youth is a much more important approach and will get us much better outcomes long term. Because like you said, it really is about managing expectations. And it's not just about ketamine. I think it's about everything. And people are going to have experiences. And they're like, oh, why did this feel like this? And it's, oh, some people like cannabis is just not for whether it's 10% or 15% of the population, like, it's just going to cause you unnecessary anxiety, even if it's a quote, unquote, like indica, which we're like, not supposed to say, because it doesn't exist or whatever. But it's even if it's that kind of strain, that doesn't produce anxiety in most people, like it can cause problems for people. And I think it would just be better to be honest about all that and having a society founded on maximizing happiness and maximizing honesty and openness, I think would just be a much better way to run a society. Oh, I agree. It's just, it's a tough sell because you can't monetize happiness or, or measure it per se. And so it's just an interesting, we've just gotten ourselves into a very interesting period where I think people are waking up to the fact that this old way of doing things is not really that sustainable. And there are alternatives that perhaps we haven't even considered yet. And what you were speaking to to me is the difference between uh, teaching safe use versus teaching abstinence. Like we know abstinence doesn't work. People are going to engage with these substances in some way, shape or form. We may as well teach them honestly how to do it and let them make a decision. From my perspective, we're all entitled to explore our own consciousness and the depths of our own psyche, regardless of which tools we use to do. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Oh, I couldn't agree more on that last part. Like I, if I had to, if I were starting my own country, I think the first, like I think more important than freedom of speech is like the freedom to explore your own consciousness, because really it's the government preventing you from like really inhabiting and exploring your own mind. I don't think there's anything more fundamental than that. Like speech is actually towards an external goal. Obviously you want to express yourself or whatever, but that's still, that requires another party. But to say that you can't do these things like by yourself is to me just absolutely crazy. And I think the other thing about safe use and, and really teaching safe use is like, hey, shit can happen, right? Not so much with benign psychedelics that aren't going to kill you or something, but hey, if people are using drugs that can act that you could actually overdose on, for example, um, 
it's way better to teach people about those dangers and what to look for. So it's if you're out with your friends and you guys are doing a bunch of ketamine or you guys are doing a bunch of cocaine or whatever it's going to be, that if someone does a little too much and gets into a troublesome place, that you're able to actually find the way, the best way to help them. And also to not have that stigmatized. And I know there's some good Samaritan laws out there now around not prosecuting and not arresting people who are helping other people that are doing something that is illegal for either or both of them. But to me, like the fact that we even need to have good Samaritan laws is insanely fucked up. Like it should just be, no, our default standard is help other people, help other human beings. And so if you see one, see someone in need, like that should be cue to you to go and help them and not to be scared that, oh, if I help this person who just overdosed, like I'm going to get arrested. Like how massively fucked up is that? It's crazy. Oh, it just, it just shows where the priorities are. We don't actually care about the safety of our citizens. If we did, we would allow companies like Dance Safe to have testing booths at festivals. But nope, because of the Rave Act, too dangerous, crosses some legal line that we're not allowed to drug test at a festival because that would encourage drug use. It's No, in reality, you would save a lot of unnecessary overdose with fentanyl-laced product if you allowed the opportunity to just test substances without repercussions. Oh, yeah, it's so wild to me that like with the rise of fentanyl and fentanyl lacing, that they didn't just like scrap that and say, okay, yes, please test everything. Cause you're just going to have more and more dead kids, dead adults, and it's fucking pointless. And for what some puritanical ideal of how people wanted us to live in the 1600s. And we still have to abide by that. Like it's total bullshit. And if only more people, more communities would really get on board with, Hey, we need more needle exchanges we need more ways to make things safe because people are going to do what they're going to do you can't control that with any laws they're just going to do it look how big the illicit market is just for cannabis right like people are going to do their own thing so let's at least make it as safe as possible for them and like you said and like your work is focused on safety and harm reduction and i think that is such an important principle to not just the psychedelic movement, but the movement towards legalization overall. Look at Portugal. It's literally on the same planet and they've been decriminalized for everything for what, 20 years now? And it's, Portugal still exists. It didn't break off from Europe and sink into the ocean. Come on. It's just asinine that we're still dealing with this nonsense at this point. Totally. The good news is, as we've highlighted, change is coming. And I'm hopeful that we are trending in the right direction here. And that's, I'm doing everything I can to stand up for everything we just talked about, which is safe, expanded access, the ability to educate honestly and authentically, and the ability to be truly supported by another human in your experience. We basically encourage underground use that is unsupported in the current model. And that just has to change. It's amazing the amount of people that reach out to us after reading something like Michael Pollan's book. And they're like, I read the book, I have mushrooms, but I'm still too scared to do this on my own. Like, good. That is the perfect opportunity to reach out and ask for help so that you don't find yourself in one of these situations where you're calling a, a police or a first responder and they have no idea how to deal with you either. Oh, yeah, that's those are the last people we need like involved in this, especially what's going on for the past 
you know, hundreds of years, really. Yeah, I think Denver just started a really cool initiative where they're actually teaching first responders how to deal with people under the influence of psychedelics because they're not taught that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just being able to recognize and be able to talk someone through it without making it much worse and definitely not coming with not that a first responder is going to come with a violent approach. And when the cops show up and they're just like, oh, this person's crazy, let's shoot them. And you could have just talked to them. Everything's gonna be okay. Yeah. How about words? (laughs) Yeah, that's so wild. So tell me, what drove you to focus on helping men live better lives? I just saw the pain and suffering that men were silently harboring under the guise of being tough or macho or whatever the case was. And as I continue to do my own men's work and peel back the layers, I started to really realize that the vast majority of issues in our society stem from men feeling like they're not enough in the present moment. So whether that's violence, control, greed, any of these things that we know are not great, to me, there is almost always a root in this not enoughness or or lack of self-worth and self-love. And I, I, men also don't have safe outlets currently to do that kind of work because that work is so highly stigmatized to break down and cry, to talk about your feelings, to, to really dig deep as a male. And once I had exposure to men's work, men's groups, and these various outlets that I didn't even know were a thing, I was like, wow, these are truly powerful and transformational. And I feel called to offer this for others. And so that's how that all came about. And so do you integrate psychedelics into that work as well? Or is it more like a sober focus on, hey, let's be accountable to each other. Let's express our emotions. Let's get in touch with who we are and and heal like our inner children and so on. So it's a mix. Like the men's groups that I run, the sessions that we'll do twice a month, those are sober. But almost every single male that I have worked with has or will Uh, have some kind of experience with psychedelics to support their own internal transformation and growth. And so whether that's with me or not, I don't really care as long as they feel like, excuse me, they have the support that they need. Mm. That's fantastic. It's excellent work and very necessary. Yeah. And it's what's really cool for me is to hear guys who are so skeptical about stepping into this work six weeks in go, oh my God, I was suicidal when we first started talking and now I have a new job, a new partner, and I moved across the country and have totally turned my life around. And oh, by the way, this is the single most important thing I engage with on a monthly basis. Oh, okay, wow. And what I realized is it's not me. Like I'm just a facilitator. What it is is men being in community in a supportive, non-judgmental space. That is the medicine. Oh, yeah. It's really all about digging into the self and being able to confront who you are, the things you've done, what you've been through, and then be able to transform that into something grounded in like unconditional love, instead of fear, hatred, bias, prejudice, things of that nature. We live in such a crazy fear based culture. And it's hey, like, we could actually live in a love based culture. And things would be a lot better. But everything from the top down is we spend everything goes to the Defense Department, right? It's if you're a taxpayer in the US, you're putting money towards killing people directly. And it's like, what if we just stopped doing that? We're like, Oh, my God, what would happen? Yo, all we do is go and fuck with people. 
and that's all we do. That's like a large part of mass shootings and other school shootings and like other issues like that. And who does the vast majority of those men and boys? And it's just no one wants to, as a society, reflect on how we've just created this culture of toxic masculinity that we can actually shape into something else entirely. Totally, because we're not really an alternative isn't really available between video games, mass media, the movies, music, like it's, it all perpetuates this kind of old school masculine mentality that is predicated on control and the self above all else. And what that's resulted in from my perspective is a huge lack of emotional intelligence and then the subsequent ability to truly express yourself as a male and providing an outlet for safe a non-judgmental expression where you can actually feel heard, seen, and understood. Half the challenge is just being validated in whatever it is that you're going through. And it's honestly some of the most rewarding work that I do because the transformations are so rapid and the support and accountability is is built in because of the group nature. And so there's a higher buy-in and you are held accountable because a lot of people have a problem being accountable to themselves. The ego is sneaky and will give you a thousand different reasons why you can skip your workout today or give in to your triggers or whatever the thing is. And for me, it's just a beautiful process to, to be able to facilitate. Mm. Oh, it sounds so powerful. You're almost like making me want to go and do that and <laughs> start one as You're well. You're welcome to check it Make out. Make those places. Yeah, no, it is so necessary. We need so many more people, not just like doing it themselves, but like actually like start things like this. And I think it's probably a good time to be able to, because of COVID and just like everyone sort of jumping on the virtual Zoom bandwagon and stuff that you can create these dynamics like nationally and internationally, seemingly overnight, because I think there is if it's not overtly expressed in a lot of places, I think this is like a dormant desire of many men. And I'm sure you've seen that because you're obviously in business doing this. And so you see the need, you see the desire on people to do this. And then even if they're reticent, you at least get them over the hurdle, come and join this, come and start this and then get past your ego. And then boom, like they have transformative experiences and stuff. And I've been in some like different like similar groups that have actually mostly been women that's oh hey step into your power and and those kinds of things and it is interesting the dichotomy of that because it's like the men have for too long had too much power and women have not had enough and so the sort of different needs of like groups like this kind of push in the opposite direction but it's hopefully leading back to some sort of like equilibrium where you know men women non-binary people are all treated as just human and we can be on an equal and level playing field together totally it's been interesting because my partner does a lot of women's work and there's such a difference in the willingness of men and women to engage in these various practices women will sign up for a course overnight ready to go and i have men that are like yeah that sounds cool but way too much of a stigma not sure i'm ready for that and there's this element of stigmatization for men doing this kind of inner work that is is a tough hurdle to overcome and what i've realized is there's nothing that i can do or say that will convince someone to embark on this journey i find that it often takes some sort of dark night of the soul for them to go oh shit okay something's got to change and basically the analogy i use is like 
the pain of the present moment has to be stronger than the discomfort of change. Otherwise, the vast majority of men will just endure because that's what we're taught. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Agree 100%. It's a hell of a drug, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's the warrior mentality. But from my perspective, the hardest warrior journey we'll ever take is is the one inside. Yeah, it is really wild, right? Like when you think back to the times where a lot of that I think is based on just like tens of thousands of years of human evolution is like, there is never, there was never a group of humans, or there's never a man who did anything on his own. It was always about community. It was always about helping everyone and, and surviving together. And then we come and create this fucking country. And it's like, totally. Oh, we're totally. all individualists. More. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? It wasn't one dude who won the Revolutionary War. And then you literally built this country on the backs of, you know, chattel slavery of enslaved people from Africa and other and some other places. And it's just you white dudes haven't done shit. What are you talking about? And then to now just be like, oh, everyone should be on their own like embrace rugged individualism and this bullshit. And it's just, that's not how we got here. That's not how we became the most advanced civilization on earth and, or advanced species on earth rather. And it's, there's totally some different ways that we can go about getting to where we need to be. Essentially we can totally build something else that is actually based on how we got to this point of actually working together to build a better world. And I think so much of the focus in this country is no, everyone needs to just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And it's, that's not how this works. It's all the richest people in this country got huge investments or inheritances. And even though it's 80, the, the, the way wealth is acquired has really flipped from inheritance to entrepreneurship. But even those people that have made it on the entrepreneurial side, even like a Jeff Bezos, like he got infusions of hundreds of thousands of dollars, which nobody, the vast majority of people never see in their lives. And so I think just being realistic about what the real dynamics are in our society, I think that goes a long way. But there is just this underlying, we need to solve the masculinity problem in this country. Totally. We emphasize the feminism movement, and I absolutely stand up for women in this, but I think one of the things that we overlooked is by demonizing men, we don't allow them to heal. And so in reality, the feminine, feminism movement wouldn't really need to be a thing if we healed our men, because they're the ones that are perpetuating these, these power imbalances towards women. But if every man truly felt like they were enough in the present moment, I truly believe a lot of that would dissipate almost overnight. Oh, I absolutely agree. But it sucks, right? Because anyone that's out there in, quote unquote, the men's right activist movement or whatever is like it's not about that they're not like we want to heal they're like stop oppressing us <laughs> you're a fucking man give me a break nobody's oppressing you like shut the fuck up and go do some inner work and so we really need men's healing advocacy right that's the movement that this country really needs that's what i'm all for and i truly believe that change will have a greater ripple effect than almost anything else we could devote our resources to. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because in every individual family dynamic from kids, even by the time kids are like 
seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old, they've already been indoctrinated into this chauvinist, sexist society. Oh, I don't like girl stuff. Oh, that's for girls or what? And it's just this constant subjugation of the female energy and spirit in the world. And it just carries on. It's yeah, no wonder like you in this weird way can like sometimes put women and girls like on this pedestal that then ends up creating like incel culture and stuff like that because we don't teach like boys and men how to develop emotional intelligence how to be good partners how to be good friends especially to the opposite sex and then yeah of course like they're gonna do crazy shit when they like can't find a girlfriend or something like that and it's like we could and it's not the fault of women it's the fault of men and it's the fault of society to not actually put in place what actually needs to be put in place and I think most people have no idea how to parent. It's not something we teach people. Most teachers and adults don't know how to treat boys in a way that empowers them to actually heal or just not become broken in the first place. Because I think the biggest problem is we live in a country with hundreds of millions of broken adults with shattered, traumatized inner children that they never deal with. And that if we could just heal the inner children then we could stop traumatizing actual children. And then there wouldn't, like, traumatized inner children wouldn't be a thing. Correct. And it's just one vicious cycle that unless we take steps to uh, reverse, it just will continue to perpetuate. And what's interesting is when we look at indigenous cultures, they take boys away from their mothers at a young age and go initiate them into manhood. And they learn from adults and elders what it means to be a man and we don't have anything even close to that level of education understanding transformation and stewardship into adulthood we just basically live our little boy wounds all through life and i was guilty as fuck of this that was part of the reason like after taking ownership of my shit i experienced such a large transformation and i realized okay it's actually my obligation to offer this to other men because otherwise I'm part of the problem. I totally agree. And I think we do have one like pretty predominant arena in which like we are training like young boys and young men and that's sports. And by and large sports is just suck it up, like tough it out, suck it up, be a man kind of thing. And that in and of itself is so insidious. People are like, oh, it's just sports. Don't attack sports, whatever. But it's just, no, it really causes significant cultural problems that go completely unaddressed because there's just this 100% focus put on certain outcomes that are not the ideal outcomes for building a better society. It might build a better football team, but it's not actually how we want people to live and there's certainly great lessons you do learn and i played sports growing up and you learn so much about hard work and camaraderie and, and teamwork and stuff but it is a culture in which it's suppress your emotions and crush anything that looks like weakness right when like really like being emotionally vulnerable is a strength like most people can't do it most people don't and have the irony it. is that's what turns women on <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's crazy. And it's just it's it's something that's in need of a fundamental reimagination and thinking about how can we structure things differently to make sure that we actually get the outcomes that we want. Because what do we have right now? We have at colleges a variety of 
advice and programs given to women like here's how not to get raped here's how not to be sexually assaulted don't go walking by yourself don't do that and women should be allowed to walk by themselves anywhere in the world but they can't because men fucking suck and men don't want to take ownership of that and there's just like with cops there's so little actual mutual policing among men to be like hey you're fucked up that's not cool whether it's like the quote-unquote locker room talk or things that are worse and it's just oh yeah You've just got these cultural like brainwashing things that really take over what men do and that prevents them from doing the right thing, even if they were like, quote unquote, raised correctly or raised to be good people. Peer pressure is one of the strongest drugs in the world, and it can cause you to do shit that you'd never think you would do in a million years. But then before you know it, oh, you're doing some fucked up shit because some other dudes said you should. and You just want to be cool. And it's making it's taking you further and further away from the self and what you should actually be doing. 100% couldn't agree more. And thankfully, I think, you know, my generation, at least, is slowly starting to become aware of some of this stuff. And they are willing to embark on some sort of spiritual journey and start to peel back some of those layers and look at it. And so I'm hopeful. I think we're seeing at least I'm seeing more and more people gain acceptance around this work. And ironically enough, I actually think psychedelics kind of funnel people into this idea of inner work, regardless of sex. It's this funny thing where we branded psychedelics as a magic pill or a cure-all. And I think it's grossly misleading, but at a minimum, the benefit is that it provides people an entry point into this much larger healing journey. Oh yeah, they're it's they're essentially gateway drugs to inner work, which is fantastic because nothing else does that. Like cannabis, you're not going to start questioning who you are and how you treat other people for the most part. But some different psychedelics are going to have you really question who you are, what you've done in the world, if you've made the world a better place, if you've been good to the people in your life and how you can do things better. Totally. Exactly. And I am hopeful that we are trending in the right direction here. And I don't think there's anything we can do to control or force it other than to be the change and to embody these aspects that we want to see mirrored in others. Oh, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Nick, this has been such an awesome and enlightening and fun conversation. It's been awesome getting to talk to you today. But that does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Really good question. I would say embracing me with unconditional love and being willing to take me under their wing, even when I had no money and essentially nothing to offer them other than my energy and presence. So powerful. Yeah. Sounds, sounds amazing. <laughs> that was my mentor. He's amazing. And ever since that gesture, I have felt called to do the same for others because there's something powerful about someone who's at rock bottom and, and willing to do the work, but 
doesn't have the Western means, i.e. money to support it. And so part of what we do at Psychedelic Passage is is offer low or no cost programs to certain people who we can tell are willing to do the work, but just don't have the means to do it because healing shouldn't only be accessible to those in high economic classes. That's a load of shit. Oh, I couldn't agree more. That's yeah. Amazing work you're doing. I'm excited to see where this goes and and see what it becomes. I think you're on a great path. Thanks Pacifico. I appreciate it. And it was a real pleasure connecting with you today. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was uh, an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Likewise, we'll talk soon. Definitely. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn how they create unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.